If you have your Bibles, we are going to, in a way, continue our series that we've been in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. But we are also going to be in an Old Testament text of Judges chapter 3, verse 31. So if you don't know where Judges is, just start at the very beginning of your Bible in Genesis and keep turning forward. You'll eventually get to Judges. It's the seventh book in the Bible. We'll be in chapter 3, verse 31. And Matthew is the first book in your New Testament about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. So Matthew chapters 5 through 7 and Judges chapter 3, verse 31. So a couple months ago, I was in my Bible reading. I was reading through the historical books, the history of Israel. And, <coughs> excuse me, apologize in advance. I've had a sinus infection all week. Um, so if I cough or sneeze, I will do my best not to deafen y'all and the microphone. I was reading through the historical books, what we call um, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel. And I was using this really cool app that it reads it to you, but there's like this, like some like nice like background music or background sounds to it, which is really cool. But if you've ever read through the Old Testament, there's some interesting things in there that sometimes you're like oh, that doesn't really uh, pair well with this nice, soothing music that I'm listening to. So Teresa's here. She's going to help me out. And so I'm reading through the book of Judges, and then I stumble across this. So imagine you're in a nice, low-lit room with a cup of coffee. You have that playing in the background, and then you hear this. After Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, became judge. He also delivered Israel striking down 600 Philistines with a cattle prod. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> don't, don't, don't we all want a coffee mug with Judges 331 on it? Everybody give Teresa a round of applause. Thank you, Teresa. I've, I've never seen a coffee mug with Judges 331 on it or uh, somebody's Facebook or Instagram bio that says, through God, I can kill 600 Philistines with a cattle prod, anything like that. So it was, it was a little jarring, and it, it, caught, it caught my attention uh, in, that, in that nice, relaxing moment that I'm spending time with God, and then there's this violent verse out of nowhere. But it caught my attention for several reasons. For one, we have this one verse about this guy, and he's mentioned one other time later in chapter 5. But I thought it was interesting that the author of Judges felt that it was worth including. That it's this one thing, we don't really know much about him, but it's worth including. And it also caught my attention because whenever we think of stories in the Bible, you know, we typically think of um, Jesus sitting on a mountain talking to people or uh, Jesus going after the 99, these, these nice, soft stories. And whenever we see Bible verses on social media or our banners or something like that, it's usually with a background, something like this. And then here we are basically with the scene out of Braveheart, Gladiator, or Troy of somebody in battle with a cattle prod. And so that caught my attention as well. And then I was also like, well, this does seem like something out of Braveheart. This would be an awesome action movie, to which I found out that there is, in fact, a short action movie starring a Navy SEAL about this. I'm like, heck yeah, brother, this is awesome. Um, you know, this, this is great. But the, I kept coming back to this one verse I wasn't entirely sure why, why this small one short story of Shamgar just kept standing out in my mind. But 
It just, it, it did. And so I think part of it is we hear this about this cattle prod. And some of your translations may say ox goad. It's, it's the same thing. And so all a cattle prod was was basically it was a pointy stick um, that they would have used to do exactly that, to prod cattle. So it's not really something that you would think of as like a, a great weapon. It might do as an improvised weapon if you have to. There's another picture of sometimes it might have like the point and also like a little bit of a hook on it. But it's not something that you think of whenever you're, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to go battle 600 people. Let me grab my trusty cattle prod, right? No, this is showing us that chances are Shamgar was not in any sense a warrior. He was more than likely a farmer. That's why he was using a farming tool uh, to fight all these people. And also, I'm like, well, how does one person end up beating an army of 600 people? That just doesn't make sense. And so as I did a little bit of digging, I found that in the book of Judges, that there were two standards of what made someone a successful judge. There were two standards of what made somebody a successful judge. And those two things were whether or not they were faithful to God and whether or not they delivered Israel. Now, whenever we think of the book of Judges, it's not the same as what we have as a judge today in America. It's not somebody who was giving sentences or making rulings or anything like that. And to be honest, I still get a little bit confused of how sometimes there were judges along with kings, things like that. But essentially, that's exactly what they were, is that they were there to deliver Israel. They were some sort of person uh, that had authority that were in charge, and they were in charge of helping Israel stay faithful, and then they were there to help fight the battles, so on and so forth. And so Shamgar did just that, because we see it literally says he also delivered Israel, but whenever we come back to this idea of how does one person who is most likely not a warrior in any capacity fight 600 people at one time and win? Well, to me, that shows his faithfulness to God because that's the only way. Every time that we see these big miraculous stories in the Bible, it's because somebody was faithful to God and he used them to deliver or to do something great through them. It was God working. It was God's power. He just happened to be doing it through them. And so I'm, I'm studying this, and I come across a commentary. Dr. Tony Evans, he's pastor in Dallas, a great scholar, and it says exactly that. How does one person kill 600 people with a cattle prod? And he, which he gave some great insight and wisdom and said, more than likely, one by one. Like, yeah, that, that checks out. But the, he went on to say, yes, one by one. But again, it was God working in this moment. The Philistines were always the bad guys. The Philistines, anytime they were involved, it was never a good time for Israel. And so this is God working. This is God working through somebody who is more than likely a humble farmer and was staying faithful to God to fulfill this duty of delivering Israel. Now you're probably thinking, what in the world does this one guy with a farming tool have anything to do with the Sermon on the Mount? And if you listen to preachers, Bible scholars anywhere, none of them will tell you that it has anything to do with the Sermon on the Mount. There's not really any connection. There's no secret reference that Jesus makes to Shamgar or anything like that. However, as I dug into this, 
I really started to think that our application with Shamgar of this small little verse is very similar to our application of the Sermon on the Mount. See, the Sermon on the Mount requires us to rely on God. Just like being a successful judge was being faithful to God so that he would use them to deliver Israel, we have to fully rely on God to have any success as a Christian. To be a successful Christian means to rely on God. We have to give our life to him. We have to rely on his grace, his love, and his mercy. And whenever I study the Sermon on the Mount, it has really messed with me for quite a while of why grace isn't really mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. When you stop and think about it, the Sermon on the Mount's a bunch of rules. It's a bunch of commands. It's similar, even takes it a step further than what we see in the Old Testament. Jesus says, well, you heard it here in the Old Testament, not to do this, but I tell you this. He says, you heard it not to murder, but I tell you, don't, don't even have anger in your heart. You heard it here, don't, don't have adultery, but I'm telling you, don't, don't even look at somebody with lustful eyes. It's even taking it a step further. So I'm like, how is Jesus coming? Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. And how is he preaching this that almost just seems like this list of rules that we have to abide and follow with no mention of grace? And so what I've finally come to after a lot of prayer, a lot of conversations with people, is I think the entire thing is showing the desperate need for grace. We can't uphold everything in the Sermon on the Mount. Not at all. I can't be the salt and light of the earth on my own. I can't just naturally love people the way that we're called to love. It's natural for me to want the glory whenever I do something rather than to truly do it, to give to people, to pray for the glory of God like Jesus tells us to. So the whole thing is having us rely on God's grace. So we need to rely on God's grace. We need to rely on his love and mercy to be able to fulfill the Sermon on the Mount at all. And that's the whole thing of the Sermon on the Mount is basically saying, Here, here's how you Christian. Here's how you do it. Here it is. Be humble. Submit to me. Be the salt and light. Let everybody know this good news that you know. Love people the way you're supposed to love. Love people the way I loved. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, but rely on me to do it. It's not you doing it on your own. Now we have kind of different types of calling. We have kind of like our vocational calling. If you're called to be a teacher or a pharmacist or a nurse, construction worker, farmer, whatever it is, just like Shamgar was called to be a judge, but then we kind of have callings within that. So it's not just, oh, I'm, you know, I'm this X profession, so that exempts me from doing these things, from doing what Jesus calls me to do. Because, oh, I'm, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a Bible scholar, I'm not a preacher, an evangelist, I'm not Billy Graham or Beth Moore, so I'm, I'm good. I'm just, God called me to teach. God called me to do maintenance. And yes, he did, but he called you to do those things. He calls all of us to do those things because he's going to do something through that. Because he calls us to be the salt and light of the earth, not just calls, he says, you are the salt and light of the earth. So that's like the call within the call, right? 
So we have these vocational callings, but we're also called to follow him, to submit to his grace, to let him work in and through us. So whenever we're talking about this idea of being a successful Christian, of Jesus handing us the Sermon on the Mount, saying, here it is, we also have a parable later on of Jesus giving people gifts, or of someone giving people gifts, and saying, use these well, and then whenever the person comes back, he determines whether or not they used it well. The ones that use it well are rewarded, the one who did it is punished. And so that's Jesus saying, I'm giving you my grace, I'm giving you my teachings, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, now use it well. Use that to be the salt and light of the earth. Use that not to anger. Use that not to lust. Use that to be as close to God's perfection as you can. Allow me to work in and through you, and he's going to determine whether or not we stewarded that well. See, like we said, God likely did not call Shamgar to be a warrior, but he did enable him to be whenever he needed to be. God may not have called any of us in here to be an overseas missionary, but he will absolutely equip us to, be, to share the gospel with somebody whenever that opportunity arises. Because he doesn't say, oh, some of you are called to uh, share the gospel. He says, no, as you're going, as you're teaching, as you're being a pharmacist, as you're doing maintenance, whatever it is, as you're doing those things, go and make disciples. See, God will use us in incredible ways whenever we steward his grace and the Holy Spirit that he gives us. As we're doing small things, even if we feel like, oh, we're not called to, the, to do these huge, magnificent things. So we have how Shamgar was a successful judge. We have what it looks like to be a successful Christian. And lastly, I'm going to look what it means to be a successful human. Now, I know that, that probably sounds a little weird of, oh, be, be a successful human. And this is not a 10-step way to get a mansion and a Ferrari and never have any sickness in your life. That's not it at all. But when we look at Scripture, what it means to be human is a little different than sometimes how we think of it. See, a lot of times we say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm only human. Or I'm only human, I can only do so much. Or, of course I fail, I'm, I'm just a human. And in a sense, that's absolutely right. Because we live in a fallen world where God's perfection no longer abounds. Sin has entered, and we are no longer perfect, right? At the same time, though, when we look at God's creation, we were made in the likeness and image of God. He breathed his life into us, and that's what it truly meant to be human, was that we were made in the image of God, that there were no flaws, there were no sin, there wasn't anything there to keep you from being this perfection, this image of God. And so Jesus' introduction to what the kingdom of God looks like in the Sermon on the Mount is really irrelevant in this sense because there's nothing that he's having to counteract. There's no sin. There would have been the need for somebody trying to bring glory to themselves whenever they pray because God was right there with them. There was, there was no separation. There would have not been the need to bring glory to yourself whenever you give to the poor and needy because there were no poor and needy, it was perfection. There would have been no need to try and say, for there need to be an emphasis of make God 
your rock and your foundation, because he already was. We're having to remind of that to constantly be having to work on that. It's already there. So Jesus is, in a way, bringing us back to what it means to be a truly perfect human. Now, we're not going to meet that perfection. That's why he fills in the gap with his grace and his love. But he enables us to look more and more like it through the Holy Spirit, through his love, through his grace. And it's starting to take us back to what God intended before the fall. See, just earlier this week, I finished a book that I would recommend to anybody, really. It's called Howdy Human by a guy named Carlos Whitaker. And Carlos is a uh, former worship pastor. He's a speaker, author, and he just has a pretty big presence online on social media. And whenever I saw the title of the book, it just kind of seemed like a self-help type deal, which isn't, isn't really my jam. Um, but I had read some of his stuff before, and I had seen him promote it and talk about it. I'm like, I'll, I'll give it a try. And what seemed like this like, simple self-help, oh, how, just how to human, how, how, how to live, is basically kind of how I read the title. He really kind of digs into some really, really rich and deep thematics and theology. Of, he says essentially that of we're going to look at Jesus' life as this ultimate example of what it means to be a human, and then we're going to try to apply that to our lives through him so that we can look like what God originally intended for us. Now, he doesn't say that explicitly, but that's what he is insinuating, and he breaks that in to three different sections throughout the book of be, see, and free. And so every chapter is be love, be justice, be courageous, see people, see humility, things like that. As I was thinking about that along the lines with the Sermon on the Mount, I'm like, well, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Be humble, be the poor in spirit, be the salt and light of the earth, be pure in heart, be truthful, be willing to go the second mile, see enemies as people. See the needs of others. See that God provides. See the narrow gate. See what is in you that you need to repent of. And then we are free from the law and doing these things on our own whenever we make Christ our foundation. And we are able to free others with this message and show them the love that God has so graciously and abundantly given us. So next time you're reading through Judges and you see Shamgar, probably going to read it and move on because it's one verse. However, it's so rich in that God can work so mightily, so mightily through one person whenever we just remain faithful. If it, may, it may not be what we thought it was going to be, of what our calling was going to be. However, God can and will use us. He'll use the gifts that he has given us. See, the great uh, revivalist George Whitfield in the 1800s, he studied theater. He didn't, he didn't think he was going to be a preacher. He studied theater. And then he realized the need to share the gospel and applied what he learned in theater to 
preaching, to sharing the gospel, and became the most famous preacher at the time. There was, it was said, I mean, there's no way to prove this, but that everybody in America at the time either had heard him preach or knew somebody that did. And so he used his giftings. He allowed God to work through those small details of what he was gifted in to preach the gospel. Now you may be thinking, how am I here in the comma in West Comma, Texas, going to have that big of an impact? I don't know. If we let God work in and through us, truly be the salt and light of the earth, he can and he will. 